Well, look, we, we don't have too much time. It's the darkness that's got you down. Nobody ever feels really safe in the dark. Nobody who's ever a child, that is. I'll open these, all right? There, that's much better. What a lovely evening. Pity we, we couldn't have done it with the curtains open in the bright sunlight. Hello and welcome to Roast Into Review, the show where every week we pick something that we're feeling nostalgic for. We then revisit and review it to find out if our hindsight is truly 2020 or if we've just been wearing roast tinted glasses. I'm your host, Michael Jerbez, and I'm joined as always by my good friend and co-host, Connor Akeen. How's it going, Connor? Well, I, I was gone, pretty good, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> yes, finally, another episode where I can do that. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're going to do It's a Wonderful Life a second time. <laughs> <laughs> it sure is, Michael. It sure is. Uh, no, we're not doing It's a Wonderful Life. We are finally hitting up the master of suspense, Alfred Hitchcock himself, with mm-hmm. Rope, the 1948 flick in which two men attempt to prove they can commit the perfect crime by hosting a dinner party after strangling their former classmate to death. Yes. Uh, fucking cool, cool premise. And it's yep. also based on a play. I was going to say, it, it, like Hitchcock infamously has that uh, that clip where he's talking about what suspense is. Yeah. In movies yep. and then, yeah it's, 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 you show the bomb under the table and then people are talking and stuff. It's like he saw the play of this and and went, well, they've put a body not just under the table but in the table (laughs) and just fucking went with it yeah and of course directed by alfred hitchcock but based on the play by uh, patrick hamilton adapted by hume cronin and screenplay by arthur lorentz the film stars dick hogan john doll farley granger edith everson douglas dick joan chandler cedric hardwick Constance Collier and, of course, uh, already mentioned Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, so James Stewart at this point, yes, I think. Yes, James Stewart. He's uh, in his 40s at this point. Mm. So, yes, like you said, it is. that's not exactly what I was thinking when I was watching the movie. I was like, this is literally the whole, the bomb under the table, this is what suspense means. So I think it's a good, it's a good first pick for a Hitchcock. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. Like any any Hitchcock film is going to have a lot of suspense in it, but this is just like truly he was the master of suspense. And it's not one of your obvious picks. It's not Psycho. It's not The Birds. Exactly. We want to be like smarmy film students by picking an Alfred Hitchcock. We're going to be even smarmier film students by picking like not the obvious. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you get to be the smarmiest of the film students, at least between the two of us, because this was my first time seeing this movie. Uh, But I will say... I got to feel very fucking clever uh, about myself. And let me, let me explain why. I, okay. I want to hear how you got into this movie, of course. I want to hear your history with this flick and why you picked it. But as a new viewer, uh, I, I have some, some thoughts. I had some thoughts off the bat. Oh, yes. Uh, so this movie starts. It's directed by Alfred Hitchcock. I see in the credits it's got Dick Hogan and Douglas Dick. Mm-hmm. Off the bat, I'm going, there's a lot of dick in this movie. There is a lot of dick, yes. And then the, the and then. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then uh, uh, Brandon and Philip start talking to one another about committing the the perfect crime. And I'm sitting there going, okay, 
Maybe, maybe, maybe I'm reading into this. The energy there's an, a certain energy here, and maybe I'm mm-hmm, reading mm-hmm. into this. I, you know, I'm 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 uh, I'm a progressive young man in in, <laughs> in current year, and maybe maybe it's my uh, my um, predisposition to to liking cock, whether it's hitch adjacent <laughs> or not. Maybe I'm looking for something here. After the movie, I open up Wikipedia, and what do I see? There is a, a, a subheading dedicated to homosexual subtext. That's right. Ding, 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 we got him. You got it, dude. I got it, dude. That's something that I definitely didn't pick up on, on either of the viewings. <laughs> but, yes, I um I did hear about the subtext afterwards as well. And, yeah, nah, good good shout. Yes, we have a wiener. We do. <laughs> yeah, very interesting uh, kind of story behind it being... During the time of uh, like that censorship by the church strongly in America for films and all of that, um, so it was very much like a or like not even just a taboo subject for film, but like nobody fucking liked the gays back then. So mm. it's all in the subtext. It's all this like double meaning and stuff, and the whole like oh they're gonna find out about the murder that we did, but is the murder or something else? Is it like are oh, they gonna find out about us? They're yeah, gonna yeah, find yeah. out our secret well, and all that. Well, that's the thing. Um, the Apparently, the play which the film is based on, it's it's heavily implied that Brandon and Philip are in a homosexual yes, relationship. Yes, um, and that one of them had a relationship with uh, the their teacher Robert as well. That he was ah, right. that he's also that. gay, and that yeah, one ah, of them had okay. an affair with him. Well, and also uh, Arthur Lawrence was uh, had had a relationship with uh, Farley Granger. Mm. So the gays. Yeah, yeah. Well, but um, they fingerprints all over this. That's right. Well, I watched the. And it's really interesting because, like, the, shit. Back then, if you were trying to cover up being gay, you you might as well be trying to cover up a murder for exactly, how it would yeah. have been received. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so in that way, it's really interesting. But also reading up on the uh, the actual real murder case that the play was based on mm. is. This was a really fun one to to read up on after the fact, dude. Yeah, yeah. Now there's a lot to like sink your teeth into. It's really cool. Yeah. I think we'll probably talk mostly about the movie here, but again, the, do do some do some reading after the fact, folks, because it's it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, yeah. The I watched the making of that was on my my Blu-ray copy, and mm. uh, they've got interviews with mainly uh, Arthur Lawrence. Um, there's not many people because um, it was one of those things. It's like made after the fact, like it's a modern sort of behind the scenes discussing yeah, the yeah. making of that was yeah. like made for a Blu-ray or a DVD release. Um, so there's only, you know, so many people they can grab yep. that are still around now. Um, and, yeah, it was really interesting hearing him talk about all of that homosexuality subtext about it and that the very the fact that it was very much so, uh, well, one, it was British. Uh, the play is, is a British play. So there was, yeah, like, the yeah. ad- adapting everything away from the British sort of um, class system and hierarchy to an, the American one, which is a little bit different, but mm-hmm. also... Uh, the fact that he was saying that, like, there was a lot more uh, language in the the dialogue of the play where they're referring to each other as like, "Oh, my dear, this p- person," and and stuff, and they're like, "You got to mm. cut that because that's 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 gay talk." Like, <laughs> that's too on the nose. <laughs> you don't call your male friends dear anything. You call them a piece of shit and you punch <laughs> them in the face. <laughs> Uh, speaking of my Blu-ray, uh, that that was my first experience seeing this film. Mm-hmm. I became a, a huge Hitchcock fan in high school because, uh, being the like the the, the film student admirer uh, that I am, you know, you mm. got to know your classics and stuff. And Hitchcock's, you know, legendary for that. So uh, my drama teacher 
I've talked about many times on this podcast now. He would lend out his his great library of DVDs, but Rope wasn't one. Uh, I don't I don't know if he had it actually, or whether it wasn't one of the ones like we were saying. It's not one of the obvious ones. So yeah. I was watching Rear Window and Vertigo and mm. Psycho and stuff, The Birds, uh, and it wasn't until I got gifted the Alfred Hitchcock like big Blu-ray box set ah, for the my. BBB. I think it was my 21st birthday. My aunties and uncles all like, let's get him a joint present. What? A, he's a Aww. film student. He'll, he, uh, film students. Film students like Hitchcock. Yeah, yeah, that's lovely. Um, and that was really cool. It's a really nice box set. It's got like 14 or so of his movies in it. It's um, difficult to do a box set of like a specific director when he had such a big career and he worked with like lots of different studios. So like the licensing mm-hmm. of like multiple different uh, studios, like films in the same package is is a bit more difficult than someone like yeah. a, you know Christopher Nolan who's only worked with like the one studio the entire time basically mm-hmm. and then it took me about a year to watch this because at the time when they gave me the box set I didn't have a blu-ray player <laughs> so it wasn't until the end of 2013 when I got a blu-ray player with my Xbox 1 purchase that wow okay I jumped into it and yeah it fucking Hooked me straight away. The whole concept of it being still, they haven't really altered like the the blocking from what a play is. It's shot very much like a play. Yeah, absolutely. The set uh, has that that look to it as well. Yeah. Although uh, in some points, it, it almost looks like a uh, like a late night TV show, like a, a David <laughs> Letterman sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. The bit at the end the, where, um... it's, where it's panning, where it's panning out, and um, J- James Stewart is like he's got the gun and he's fired out the window and and. The other two are kind of uh, on opposite sides of the of the frame. I was I was half expecting like a <laughs> like some kind of late night we'll swing jazzy thing. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, no, it does. It's very much that that huge rear window of the set with the mm. like the city backdrop. It's got that like uh, uh, the same thing as those sets where it's a you know it's like a matte painting or whatever. Yeah, it was a a, a, a um, cyclorama. I think is what it's called. Yeah, right, right. Uh, so, so it was like because it had like the the changes and stuff as the sun's you know setting yeah, and, and, yeah. and all that stuff. They got to be able to like yeah change the lighting and stuff. Yeah, changes even even the clouds. Mm, mm. Yeah, it's all it's it's very cool. I, I really like the look of it. So yeah, they I was fascinated by it then, and I haven't watched it since. So it was a really cool one to come back to. And goddamn, is it suspenseful as ever? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Really, um, funny from that making of. Uh, Arthur, the screenwriter, uh, was saying that in the script, you never see the murder. And then he goes, and then Hitchcock went and screwed him over by shooting the murder scene and putting it in. And he still, (laughs) like, to this day, because it was shot after the fact, he's like, I thought it was a a weakness of nerve on Hitchcock's point for putting the murder in. And Ah. by the time, and and then he's, so he states that since you saw the murder, and mm. that they did commit it, you then know that they're not going to get away with it and the whole, like, suspense of the movie's gone. And I'm like, right, that's- you're fucking crazy, dude. What are you talking oh, about? Oh, really? You think you think it's it's better for having shown the murder? I think it's so much better for having shown the murder. Right, okay, because I can kind of see where Arthur's coming from. Like, I, th- I feel like... If if we're not shown the murder, we're shown them like closing the the chest and then talking about it, and we piece together, oh, they've killed someone. Are they going to get away with it? Like I don't know. I feel like that's just that's another layer of mystery to the whole thing. But it's it's kind of um, it's not as quintessentially Hitchcock. 
you know, in exactly. It's not I a. Think, it's not a. It's not showing us the bomb under the table. I think that's not your three hundred IQ Hitchcock way of doing <laughs> stuff. That's your like imitation, like suspense stuff. That's right. that's your like simplest level of suspense of like, oh, what happened? Here's this friend that's supposed to come to the dinner party and he hasn't right, shown up. Okay, okay, yeah, uh, yeah. Something you're, going you're saying, on. Yeah, yeah, I think it's Hitchcock's so playing four D chess. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I think it's so much more masterful to see him being strangled by the rope and then chuck him in this big chest. Uh, it's a, like it's an immediate, like it starts the movie off with a bang. Like it's really interesting. You're like, oh, cool, we've just seen a murder. These two guys yeah, have killed this yeah, guy. Yeah. And then suddenly you have all these questions of like, what was the motive? What's what? Like who who was he to them? Who are these mm. people? Like everything yeah. is um, suddenly more interesting Instead yeah, of sure. the movie just opening with, you know, here's a main character and you go like, oh, I assume this is Mr. Main Character. Let's learn about him. You go like, no, mm. I really want to know what the fuck's going on with this dude since he yeah, just killed sure, someone. Sure. Um, and then as the, the conversation between the two of them goes on, we learn that they've committed this murder purely for the experiment of committing the perfect murder and getting away with it. Mm. Yeah, and they've got all these warped ideas of morality and amorality. Yeah, yeah. So like really, really interesting like snappy dialogue. It's so like witty and interesting and you're like, you're gaining little bits of knowledge from all of it. Mm. But I think the, because of that, it is that bomb under the table of it would, it still would be a twist if they had the whole dinner party and you were like, Oh, what, what, who's this, this man that didn't come, this friend, this other classmate of theirs. And then it is revealed at the end that he was dead in the thing the whole time. You'd be like, wow, what a twist. But I think it's so much more, uh, like he mines so much different uh, moments of suspense yeah, throughout sure, the film sure. because we know that that ticking bomb is there. Yeah, yeah. I guess I guess um, lines like the the woman who thinks she can read palms saying, you know, your hands are going to make you quite famous. Famous, and yeah. Him looking over at the at what we know to be the chest, but looking off screen and and looking just. You know his face dropping. Yeah, yeah. That she's. We saying- understand that to to mean him go- going like. Oh, because I strangled this person. Like, yeah, yeah. I think with all of those those things hinting at it, and the com- like, if you if you changed nothing else in the film but didn't mm. show the murder, I think it would be a bit too predictable that they have murdered this person. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, you'd be like, come on, we. Yeah, you would know that they've murdered someone. You, you'd, to, you'd like within uh, you know twenty minutes or so of them. Just yeah, talking and then you'd be like, it. come on, when, when when are we getting yeah, to it? Yeah, and then it would feel like them kind of. Yeah, taking too long to get to the bloody point. Mm-mm. Yeah, um, sure, I, I, I'll pay that. And and again, thinking more on just how he manages to mine that very not not even uh, uh, reveal, but like upfront establishment of like, all right, they've killed a guy, and you've you've seen them do it. Is like the shots like when the camera just rests, like moves away from the party and the conversation, and just rests on the uh, the maid. Like yeah. just moving back and forth and, and clearing the stuff off yeah, of that yeah. trunk. Ooh! I know, I know. It's like, it's like you think like, oh, that shot. It's like a long shot, and it's like, well, it's not a shot. Like the entire movie is like done in one shot, essentially. Yeah, of course, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But it's funny that like, yeah, the way that the camera moves and positions itself, it, it still like really cements those pl- camera placements in your in your mind as that like that shot. Yeah, yeah, and it still does stuff like using, uh, you know. Um, the positioning of something in in the frame, or the absence of something in the frame, to you know communicate just as much as you know its presence. Mm, it, it's yeah. cool. Yeah. So I think it's it's more interesting to go like, 
not, oh, have they committed a murder? It's, oh, no, they have committed a murder and are they going to get away with it? And, yeah. And right, how will sure. they get away with it? Yeah. Or the fact yeah. that, uh, that they've the it's it, I think I think it's so fascinating and like sick and twisted and definitely Hitchcock has this uh this mind for like the the, the macabre and the weird and stuff mm. that they're throwing a dinner party like to celebrate and mm, essentially yeah. deciding to move the the food from the dining table and set the like all the the placing on the that chest mm. essentially feeding the dinner guests off the top of a coffin essentially yeah yeah is is like a really wild and it darkly humorous but like sick and then twisted yeah. kind of thing that's right up Hitchcock's alley yeah absolutely and i think like getting to uh explore the aftermath of those actions in Philip and Brandon kind of experiencing it differently where Brandon is is like we get to see more and more just how un uh what do you call it unremorseful he is mm. for his actions like how he continually not just justifies his actions but becomes more and more cemented in his beliefs that no I did the right thing I did it I did a good thing here yeah, I did what yeah. like not not just like a, a I don't know a, a not even like a just thing but like a a thing that I have the right to do <laughs> it's it's fucking scary dude it, it is it's really scary and Philip we we get to see probably more what would be what we you know would hope to to see of ourselves in that character where mm. it's like all right if i if i did for for a second delude myself into thinking i had the right to take a human life i would certainly react more like philip than brandon <laughs> like i would immediately be like no <laughs> Oh, I killed someone and I'm maybe gay. Oh, no. In the 40s? Are you kidding me? Yeah, so I, it's, it's great seeing those, those two characters uh, progress, like Philip kind of crumble and Brandon, and, and Brandon be like eerily steadfast in his, his you know, feelings towards the whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. Brandon is he's, he's a fucking Patrick Bateman. Oh, it's, it's so straight creepy. Straight up, like, yeah. Yeah. This, this whole... Uh, his sort of regard for anyone or anything is very much like, oh no, yeah, you are just a, you are like a sick, twisted. You don't have like empathy for anyone. No, um, yeah, but it's wonderful uh, and fascinating watching the performance. I think, and that's why it's cool to be like, okay, this is the setup for the story, and it doesn't necessarily matter whether we we we're kind of we're still fascinated on whether they're going to get caught or not, regardless of whether we approve or disapprove or, or mm. like the characters or hate the characters. Mm. It's mm. just, it's purely fascinating because of the the situation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Just talking on, you mentioned like the way it's shot, you know, it being all one take air quotes or a mm-hmm. series of, of long takes Um, tried at least for the most part to be disguised when they've cut by you know, panning behind someone or whatever. I think that's partially, I mean, reading on the critical response for this movie at the time, that's, partially what leads it to being one of like a not an a not obvious Hitchcock pick. Yeah. You know, it's not the first thing you think of because uh, Hitchcock himself described it as an experiment mm. and not necessarily a successful one. Well, I think at the time it wasn't very well received. It didn't make waves too much. No, and it didn't make much of the box office either. Mm, yeah, and um it's funny to come around and see that on, you know, IMDb and and Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, you look at and Rotten stuff. Tomatoes. You got 97%. Like, yeah, 97%. You got like an 8 out of 10 rating on IMDb and it totally wasn't that at the time. And I think some mm. of that might have been that also because of the homosexual subtext, you know, the people that understood that subtext didn't want really to have anything to do with it mm. because they either, you know, d- didn't like that or didn't want to be associated with that 
Well, it's funny too, you're talking about like showing the murder up front. There's a quote from uh, a woman called May Tinney from the Chicago Tribune uh, at the time who wrote, if Mr. Hitchcock's purpose in producing this macabre tale of murder was to shock and horrify, he has succeeded all too well. The opening scene is sickeningly graphic, establishing a feeling of revulsion which seldom left me during the entire film. Undeniably clever in all its aspects, this film is a gruesome affair and to me at least was a gruelling spectacle not recommended to the sensitive. <laughs> I was like, uh, you hear like a, ah, and it cuts to them like yeah, a little yeah, bit of rope yeah. around the guy's neck. It's so quaint compared yeah. to, to what we Graphic. see in even an, an M-rated film. That's right. It's the classic story of um, uh, people fainting, uh, seeing Alien in the cinema or, or, or mm. running out of the cinema screaming and all of that sort of thing. Yeah, sure. But, I mean, like, I, I, I get that. Because Alien is graphic and disturbing and the idea is genuinely unnerving. This is just, again, it is so quaint but I, in again, comparison. For, for the time. Someone, for, but that, that's that's the thing, yeah, for the time. And, like and that's the, kind of what makes this movie... Probably the fact that not, you don't really see the life get chucked out of him, but you do see a rope actually around his neck. Yeah, yeah, and you're totally, like, oh, my totally. God, that's a corpse. Like, that's, <laughs> that's yeah, probably yeah, that's enough to, to push the limits of what the audience was used to watching at the time. Yeah, yeah, and that's kind of, I think, what makes this movie a fascinating watch, not just the, it, it on a technical level or you can take for granted the fact that it's going to be clever on some level, but just as, like, a, a historical document for sensibilities for the time. It's it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, very fascinating. The same with um, the way that it shot this... this uh, whole single take kind of thing. It's not It's not really, obviously, because you can tell where the, the shots are stitched together yeah. when the camera goes behind someone's back, but also there is two moments where there are straight cuts to Jimmy Stewart's like, yeah, yeah. Res- like expression of response yeah. to something. But what is, again, it's for something of the time, what's so fascinating is that you don't have... The- What's his name? Is it Alfonso Caron who loves um, did like City of Lost, uh, not City of Lost, Children of Men and Gravity and stuff doing his long takes. This is the case of nobody really did it back then. And when you see the, the this is uh, Hitchcock's first film that he did in Technicolor. When you see mm-hmm. the size of the camera, it's it's not like, a, oh, yeah, I can see how they did that. Like the, the mm. camera's like roaming around the, the thing and you're like, oh, yeah, that's handheld. You're like, it's not handheld. The camera is the size of like a fridge. <laughs> <laughs> and the entire thing was so well choreographed because it wasn't just the the preparation and rehearsal and choreography of the actors, which obviously there was. And a lot of them came from a theater background which was mm. useful because, you know, for them then it's like, oh, well, I, I do this every night or whatever yeah, on yeah. the stage yeah, anyway. You can see it in, in certain performances as well. Um, Constance Collier as uh, Miss Anita, Mrs. Mm. Anita Atwater is very, like she's chewing the scenery. <laughs> um, the camera is so big, they have to, uh, they can't just go like, oh, yeah, we'll place the camera here. They had to move furniture and all of the walls will like slide away and roll yeah. roll in and out. And so they had mm-hmm. all of these stagehands uh, like, yeah, shifting the scenery behind uh, behind the camera so that it's not, like, blo- hitting into things and stuff isn't blocking it and stuff. It's, like, a crazy feat to do with such a huge piece of machinery. But then also the limitations of uh, film at the time was that uh, you only have about 10 minutes of, mm. of uh, usable film in a reel. So yep. the whole film's made up of, like, seven or eight reels all yeah, stitched yeah. together. It's like they had to do, like, the longest take possible they could. There's not this, like feeling of today where you just go like oh yeah you do shoot a digital you have a really big hard drive or whatever or you have like multiple magazines for a hard drive so that you can like hot swap them 
and you can just mm-hmm. continually edit and you've got someone doing it handy cam and he can, you know, like follow them around and stuff. It's like, nah, none of that <laughs> like existed then. Yeah, um, totally. Even though because we've seen so many things do it since, or not even mm. so many, you know, like h- half a dozen movies do it since the whole one take wonder kind of thing that mm. you just think like, oh, yeah, it, it feels like common knowledge or like with today's technology. And it's like, no, nah, this was them experimenting with that long before the the technology had caught up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, like we uh, we came out of TAFE or, or uni around the time that DSLRs were really, in, you know, kicking off in, in vogue and stuff. And with a, we're becoming the go-tos. But even then, there was that that uh, you'd bitch and moan about only being able to shoot for what was it, like thirteen minutes or something. Yeah, yeah, the DSLRs, yeah, they they that have that that capability and stuff. Yeah. And but I mean, even then, it was the like tree and everything. And yeah, you think yeah, yeah. Like, and it's like oh, it's okay, yeah, that's that's a, that's a pain in the ass. But you just hit record again. You don't have to take a fucking film reel out and put a new one in. Like yeah, crazy. Let alone like fit, fitting that into. Um, into the camera, like not exposing that film to the light mm. and all of that stuff. Like there's a whole art and science to it that's so complicated. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, doing like a reshoot was like absolutely like a pain in the ass. Oh, I can imagine. Uh, the, um, James Stewart uh, has, has gone on record as describing the process as exasperating. <laughs> yeah. Saying the really important thing is being rehearsed here is the camera, not the actor's. That's right. But yeah, undoubtedly makes it what stands out still today that that makes it this like this tentpole interesting thing in Hitchcock's career that there's so many movies that he made that were suspenseful movies, but this is a, it's very special for that. Mm. And I mean, I think like it's uh it's particularly impressive too just because this in terms of Hitchcock's uh like films with with sound filmography let's like not even going into his silent film uh filmography yep yep this is like his first his first sound film was 1929 this is 1948 mm-hmm. he's had like i don't know like 20 or so sound films up to this point like he he is a, a well-known and well-respected director at this point and he's still taking risks yeah yeah to potentially like alienate viewers <laughs> piss off you know the the studios it's cool that he's like Fuck it! I want to do this. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He he wasn't quite the like the super old Hitchcock that we're used to seeing yet, um, or in most of the you know photos and videos and stuff of him. But mm. he was this like rock star. Yeah, not not playing it like uh, simple and uh, there's there's a lot of filmmakers that as they get older you go like oh have they kind of gotten shit or have they kind of lost their touch or mm. it feels like maybe that they're so much of their earlier films were made in the the difficult constraints of the situation and budget mm. and this and that. And then suddenly when they become the big famous movie director that's had a career for a decade or two mm. and they can just have the budget and they've got the experience, it kind of feels a little less passionate. Yeah, yeah. Here it feels like he's still trying to find ways to challenge himself. Yeah, that's a really and good way of putting it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, even when uh, it's something that doesn't click with the audiences at the time, and it takes you know decades later mm. um, f- for that for that movie to really to resonate with people. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's always an interesting one when um to see like, especially uh you know 
I guess it's it's the topic of the podcast is nostalgia. Like seeing how long it takes for an audience to turn around and and recognize the movie as as being good if it wasn't well received at the time and stuff. The Fountain kind of has that that same quality. Is one that obviously because it's one of my favorite movies and we mm-hmm. did an episode on it. Is really that that it it fucking terribly box office wise and terribly reviews wise and then like as the years go on people see it and go oh fuck this is really good and mm. and then it yeah it it, it becomes that it, it gains that that seat in like the cult classic absolutely and i think it's valuable to keep that in mind when thinking about these sorts of big names as well like i, I mean I, I haven't watched a lot of hitchcock stuff but i i fall into just th- assuming that all of his stuff has always been well received or like, you know, he has that name because all of his shit was, was well received and it was all great. And because film was, was relatively, you know, a new medium at the time, people were just happy to see moving pictures, man. They weren't <laughs> complaining, you know, everything that came out at the time was great. It's, it's worth keeping in mind that no, even the, even the greats, even the people who have gone on to be, you know, idolized and we have this artistic idolatry for had their flops. Mm. Or had their their flicks that that they even went, ah, no, nah, it's not too good. And then later on, the world caught up or, or whatever culture caught up and went, no, oh, wait, this is this is hot shit. Yeah, I guess sort of. Uh, we can kind of go by real. They, they're kind of like like little mini acts or whatever you would call them. Mm. I think the way that the the information is doled out through the script is really really fascinating. That we keep getting kind of like twists and turns. Again, it's it's sort of funny. In when you're seeing a, like a play at a theater, your attention span is kind of uh, prepared for that. So you think like, yeah, no, this is normal. Where mm. watching a film and it being like one continuous take or only taking place in the one room, mm. that can be a more difficult feat for people to watch and go, oh, like, uh, like keep their yeah, yeah. Their, well, um, you're asking you're attention. asking a lot of your audience. Mm. Well, well, you are in in like a certain aspect. There's that sort of funny thing of like people are happy to binge watch an entire season of a show on Netflix. Yes, but then if you said like sit down and watch this ten hour movie, they'd be like, "Fuck off, you're crazy." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, of course. So it, it's funny how those expectations can be framed, and so because it's a movie and it's in one room, suddenly people go like, "Oh, what?" and then they can find it a little bit more boring. So they yeah. They do do a really good job of uh, giving you like little little twists and turns and little bits of information uh, each each time uh, like, you know a new guest comes in that gives you a little bit of like context or, or recontextualizes some some things. So yeah, we we know that they've committed this murder, that they're having this dinner party, and then the dinner the the guests start arriving, um, and as changes are getting made because the the maid comes in and she's all worried because they're deciding to to serve the dinner in in the living room instead of the dining table. We, we, we find that the, the man that they've murdered, they've invited the parents to the dinner. Mm. And you're like, oh, that's that's kind of sick and twisted. But then it kind of makes sense because you go, oh, okay, they're, they're like a class friend with them. So the plan of the perfect murder to get away with it is that they've invited this friend to this dinner party and he's not going to show up and it's going to work like a perfect alibi yeah, because everyone saw them at the at the at the dinner party and stuff, and so mm. seems like nothing strange, nothing nothing's afoot. Yeah, all the characters have like really fun introductions, or like all of their dialogue feels quite specific. Like we get a good idea of who they are from 
how they're written. Yeah, from the from the way they talk. Like uh, Mrs. Wilson, we we get a, a pretty clear picture of almost immediately in just the way she talks about going about her her business in you know getting things ready for the party and stuff. What may I ask is happening to my table? Uh, we're just moving the things in here. Well. I personally thought my table was quite lovely. Oh, it, it was quite lovely. She's this kind of old, like, fuddy-duddy, uh, has a very specific way of doing things. Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting like that, that upset. They said that um, she was very much treated like, because she was the maid, she was treated like that on set. Like, the other actors didn't really treat her like a colleague. They were treating oh. her like the help, which is really, like, sad and weird, but it's, like... Yeah, she's it's wonderful. Inter- interesting. Like, she is wonderful. Maybe that's kind of part of it, that she was so convincing. Mm. In that kind of role, like it's a very, um, very much based around the cl- the class stuff and the wealth stuff. Like they're fucking. You imagine that an apartment like that in New York City, mm. fucking forget about it. And they're these prep school rich kid nonsense stuff. So mm. it's very much like yeah, the maid is is definitely like again that that inferior person. Yeah, she's she's an en- she's a mensch, but she's not an ubermensch. That's right. Um, and in the same way that uh, what's her name, Mrs. Mrs. Atwater is this fucking like oh, oh. so over the top, this is just completely vapid. Yeah, like yeah. the 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 running gag of her being like, "Oh, I saw this thing. It was wonderful. I I can't remember what it was called. Like, <laughs> just- and, and who was in it and, and all yeah, that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Was it the the, the something or the the something something? Oh, oh no, it was just yeah. just plain something. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, Janet's character having like a kind of you know a, a bit of a sense of humor and a, a wry one at that, but also being a little socially awkward and stuff. Mm, yeah, I, I really like her character. I really like her character too. It's yeah, it's got that very snappy, quippy, like yeah, just that that like nineteen forties. You smell dreamy. What is it? That uh, swirl you you gave me last Christmas. I always knew I had good taste. You do. You look lovely. I won't by the time it's all paid for. <laughs> Is that funny? I never know when I'm being funny. Whenever I try to be, I lay the bomb of all time. Yeah, yeah. Classic but not, Hollywood um, movie kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, not, not mean though. Like when she's talking with Mrs. Atwater, she's kind of going along with the, oh, yeah, something. Yeah, no, it was definitely just, just plain something. Like she's kind of just being nice. Yeah, she's very much just humouring her and then when... Yeah, yeah. It's well, Rupert that kind yeah. of uh, <laughs> is, is like very uh, kind of... Obviously to us and, and probably to anyone who isn't Mrs. Atwater taking the piss. Oh, definitely. But in a way that he knows Mrs. Atwater won't understand that, yes. she's ta- that he's taking the piss. Yes, I think you can see that Janet definitely notices that, yeah. <laughs> that he's taking the piss, but yeah, she, yeah, yeah. Mrs. Atwater's just completely oblivious to it. Yeah, the fact that Janet is the person that they expect uh, or like uh, she's, she's dating David, they expect her to be engaged with him very, very soon and that... Uh, Kenneth is invited and he's the ex of mm. of Janet and it's like, like oh why has he done that and yeah it's it's very much Brandon being this like master manipulator like like a douchebag guy and yeah yeah again it's that that arrogance of in which he's committed the murder that he believes that you know uh, a few uh, superior people have the right to commit murder of people mm. who are inferior or insignificant that mm. he is. Uh, yeah, he's lording it over everyone in their faces, essentially. Yeah. Um, and that he's like, this is the perfect murder. I'm going to get away with it. He's going to yeah, drop yeah. all these coy hints that, you know, 
oh, well, David's not going to have much of a chance with Janet necessarily now. So, yeah, like, oh, Kenneth, maybe I'll like I'll fix you up with her again. Yeah, it's almost like he thinks. Yeah, he thinks he he like while having the right to take another a lot another life. He's also just so good at this thing. He's he's orchestrating this thing so well that he can also play matchmaker in the process. <laughs> yeah, like that's it's, right. it's this it's this supreme arrogance. It's disgusting. Yeah, absolutely. But it's it's played beautifully. Oh, so good. So yeah, amazing. He he just his expression. He doesn't even yeah. have to be saying anything. He's smarmy just like, cunt. That's so smarmy. Yeah, I, and I like that Kenneth's character is kind of he he seems the most uh, like. Yes, he's part of this this upper class. He's he's a, a classmate of Brandon and and Philip, of course. But he seems like he's got a soul. Like he seems <laughs> pretty pretty like like a normal human being. Yeah, fair, you know, he's not a, he's he's not a cunt to to Janet, even though they're they're exes. He's a little it's a little bit awkward and stuff. But as their history gets revealed, you go, oh no, this is like a normal. Uh, a relatively normal human interaction. It's just fraught with, you know, hurt feelings and, and misunderstandings and the like. And it gets resolved somewhat. I like the end of their Yeah, of their I do. Subplot. I like that they that they talk it out and stuff. Yeah, yeah. When they're like clearing the plates and stuff and that she explains that like when he broke it off with her, mm. David was there and she talked with him and Why must I try and be so smart with everyone but David? Don't you kid with David too? I relax with David. Thanks to you. To me? Yes. That that grim Sunday at Harvard, when you called it quits, David took me for a walk. My chin was about an inch from the ground. I just couldn't be the gay girl. I just relaxed and let everything pour out. <laughs> the real, real me stuff. Uh, speaking of Janet and David, there's a really cool trailer for this film. I don't know if you, yeah you, whether you saw it. It's a mm-hmm. it's a scene that was shot just for the trailer. It's oh, it's David and Janet sitting in a like a park bench in the park and them talking and him essentially kind of proposing or like saying that like oh you know like you know the arrangements and all of this and exams need to be over or whatever and like you know but next week this is when it's going to happen but he says like as far as i'm concerned like we're engaged already Mm -hmm. um and gives her a kiss and then he's like all right i've got to go off and do this thing and i'll see you at the party or whatever and she goes i'll wait right here and he's like oh you're afraid you're going to say yes and then he runs off and says see ya and then it's like jimmy stewart's voice over being like but he didn't but she didn't see him later that was the last time <laughs> they ever saw each other. And it's just like, oh, that's really, it's really fun and cool to have this. That is fun and cool. And it's also cool to know that trailers have been vaguely dishonest since the 1940s. <laughs> I wouldn't call that dishonest. I think it's just, um, it's cool to have like something that's like shot just for the trailer. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. I'm, I'm, I'm taking the piss. It's, I, whenever <laughs> I hear stuff like that, I'm, I'm taken back to uh, how... Um, Misled, I felt by Amazing Spider-Man Two, and I just see red, and I start taking it out on on Hitchcock. Sorry, Alfred. <laughs> there is that kind of thing where the trailers will just legit lie in the trailer, but I think sometimes yeah. it's a good lie. Sometimes it's like, no, good, better, better than spoiling the film in the trailer. Yeah, sure. Better tell me something that's just straight up a lie and doesn't happen in the movie, but then mm. at least I will be surprised when it. Like that doesn't happen in the film. Yeah, sure. If the That's reality better. that they deliver, if, if <laughs> what they deliver is is 
vastly superior or is made better by the lie, then sure. <laughs> but I can think of occasions where that's not the case. <laughs> um, but yeah, very, very cool way to have a bit of suspense and intrigue from a trailer that's just totally like separate to the movie, not have to yeah, sh- yeah. don't show anything of the film um, mm-hmm. and still get people interested. But of course, if you had Jimmy Stewart in a trailer saying that was the last time she ever saw him, then of course you're going to be hooked. So, so hooked. You're going to be running to the theater, <laughs> begging Mr. Hitchcock to show you his film. I love that there's like lots of little details in the scene that's very much, um, it's very theater-like, but it's also just very much like give your actors something to do. Like I love that there's like the the one crooked candle in the candlestick holder and stuff. Yeah, and I was going like- to say, yeah, the amount of stuff that they, they give the actors to do while playing these scenes out. Uh, and how convincingly they do those things is really, really cool. Mm, mm. While still having this very kind of perfect timing, uh, mm. synchronizing things. So mm, like, mm. Uh, like when uh, he panics because he sees the rope like dangling out of the out of the chest, mm-hmm. he's like, "Well, if you'd let me have the lights on when we did it." I wouldn't have forgotten that, but he's like, no, there's no need to like again that smarmy arrogance of like, no, there's nothing incriminating. It's a simple household item. It belongs in the in the kitchen drawer. And then he goes in there, and they're like the that that like flapping oh, the, door. the door swinging open. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really nice. As he like dangles it and drops it in is really nice. So you have got like really pinpoint accurate moments of timing like that. Well, as yeah. while as well having those a little bit more like looser timing of things in in that kind of theater way of like oh it doesn't matter if they like slip up with their like the timing of their line specifically or even if they like stammer a little bit because it's it's kind of done in like a natural way yeah it never pulls you out it never feels like they flubbed a take or whatever no no and i mean talking about the the pinpoint precise bits again that that bit with uh where the camera's holding on the the uh the chest being uh like the the candles and stuff being taken away and all that stuff like that hearing that dialogue play out and just going like, oh, my God. These, she's, these- she's fucking, she's she's the maid. Yeah. She's clearing the table. She's going to put, he, he, they've given the bloke some of the books, but there's more yeah. books. She's going to put the books back while yeah. they're still there. Yeah. That's all really, really. Yeah, that's tied beautifully. Oh, it's just, yeah, very, very suspenseful. Um, and then, of I course. Think, I think, sorry, go on. We get uh, Rupert entering the, the dinner party late and kind of unannounced mm-hmm. is re- really, really cool. And seeing how different he is to everybody else, like he's not like the, the the vapidness of, you know, the other people or whatever. He's got this very peculiar, uh, almost like antagonistic combative, like he's not just going to, you know, go along with the niceties just because he's expected to. He says all these like odd, peculiar things and like calls people out on things. Yeah, yeah. And that bears a curious resemblance to champagne. It is. Uh, it's very good champagne, too. What's the occasion? Well, I told you on the phone. It began as a little party for Mr. Gently, so he could look over those first editions. Then it turned out Philip and I were going up to the country yeah, tonight. you told I... me that, too, Brennan. Did I? Yeah. Well, I, I thought I'd make it sort of a farewell for Philip. Therefore, champagne. Uh, yes. I see. Well, it's true. You always did stutter when you were excited. Yeah, yeah, I love the way he speaks and the way he uh, almost interrogates uh, Philip at times, where he's like, when they're when they're at the piano and he's like, where he asks like, what's going on, and mm. Philip dodges the question. He's like, I I, I hate pe- when people dodge the question. He's like, well, what did you ask me? He's like, I asked you what's going on. And he just doesn't let up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Shit like it's, that's really cool. Yeah, it's it's that normal or not necessarily normal, but like you know, you don't want to feel awkward at a social 
engagement normally. If someone says something that doesn't make sense, you're not going to like call them out and be like, no, you're lying. That's bullshit. You just kind of like let it go. Or yeah, if, if someone mishears you, you just go like, oh, no, I'm not going to like, I'm not going to say it again because I feel awkward if somebody doesn't hear me again. And then I'm, you know, that's going to make me look like a fool. Well, he, he doesn't give a shit about that sort of stuff. He doesn't mm. let off at all. Like, um, yeah, when he's when he's at the piano with him and he's like, you know, that's the second time, like, you've lied. That I was going to say, I was going to say, and that, that kind of ties in with another thing that I love, which is when they have cuts that aren't masked. Yeah, they're really, one of like, those, strong. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and those are moments where you go, like, it, it's it's for a reason. And that um that one earlier where he, like you say, he's like, when he's at the piano, he's like, you've lied to me. You've lied twice tonight. Uh, and you're going, wait, what? And then he reveals that, like, I've seen you, like, choke out a chicken before. Like, you said you never did that. And earlier, we it, it makes us, like, it recontextualizes that abrupt and unmasked cut from earlier when Philip is like, uh, or sorry, Brandon's telling the story of him, you know, choking a chicken out. And, um, <laughs> again, subtext, people. Um, and uh, he's, Philip's like, that's a lie. And it, it hard cuts to uh, Rupert kind of looking like, what the fuck? Yeah, like, yeah. And at the time, we don't know why that that's piqued his interest and then it gets revealed over that conversation at the piano. It's fucking awesome. Yeah, it's amazing. It's those little things that they pique your interest and you're like, oh, something he's something's clicked, but I don't know what's clicked yet. Mm. And then, of course, we get with the, the discussion over the food is that whole thing of, of Rupert explaining that in that very... Um, uh, he 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 publishes philosophy books and stuff. So it's this uh, Nietzsche philosophy that he's taught the students um, mm. years ago. That that kind of like oh superior being and this and that. And so he talks mm. about that idea that like oh you know no 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 murder should be allowed and you know we'll mm. we'll kill these people if they're you know it's it's hard to get seats to this play. We'll, yeah, we'll murder yeah, them yeah, and this yeah. and that and you know and and Mrs. Atwater is, you know, being her fucking ridiculous self, like chuckling mm. at it and stuff in that like that fucking like yeah, you're very very much like in the modern climate, you're very much like watching it being like you fucking rich, smarmy fucking piece <laughs> yeah, of shit. Yeah. Like they're yeah. obviously monsters already, but then like when you're when you're looking at these fucking wealthy bastards and they're like chuckling over that idea, yeah, over yeah. dinner, I mean, you're like, oh, you fucking despicable. Well, in in the in the context of um, Mrs. Atwater, you you do go like, oh, you're just a you're you're a fool, you're you're a fucking yeah. idiot. Yeah, she's a fool, and you fully, or I mean, I say you, I fully, you know, empathize with Kentley, the yes. Mr. Kentley, being like, this is. This is horrible. Like, I, I don't find this, this is, funny. Yeah, it's no, not no, humorous. I don't find this funny at all. But again, with Rupert, it's like again, he doesn't go like, "Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to offend you." He goes like, "No, no, no, I'm serious. I'm not joking." <laughs> and he like pushes the point. Yeah, but you can tell that he's he's kind of I, I don't know. You don't get the sense that he's a murderer himself or would do any of those things himself. That it's coming from like a a dark kind of morbid sense of humor, maybe that he's he's joking but he's not joking about where that feeling is coming from maybe you know, in himself yeah, yeah. and it, i think that comes out at the end where he's like oh he, it definitely he, comes he, out at the end i think he's talking about though, it being a, a way like that that way of thinking or those those attitudes or those ideas were a way of him coping with with what he found to be a dark and and horrible world but that in in seeing them play those ideas played out he he rejects them at like disowns those ideas mm. um going well like i was wrong yeah, yeah you know um and i think that's really really cool and and uh like fascinating yeah it is but i think at first 
What's interesting about it is that we're n- we don't know enough about him so that when he's giving that spiel, it also gives us a little bit of a a twist in the in the way of like, oh wait, they've they've kind of committed this murder almost to impress the teacher, like that it's like, oh, this is what you've taught us, and like, oh, he'll probably be approving. And then you think mm. like, oh, are they going to go get away with it? Is he going to find out when he does find out? Mm. Will he be upset? Like, mm. it, it, it you really don't know where it's going to go. Yeah, which yeah, makes true. it so fascinating and, and the suspense so crazy. Like when um when she's cleaning up the table and she's going back and forwards and we're we're holding on that table and you're like, oh shit, she's gonna put the books back. And then he's like, oh, I'll help you. Mm. And it's for like a, a split second. You're like, is he cottoned on? And is he gonna like? Is he there to help them and 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 stop her? Mm. Like, is he gonna cover it up and and keep the 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 ruse the going for going. them, or yeah. or is he gonna blow the lid off? Yeah. It's, it's really cool. Yeah, there's just so many little moments of, of like, aha, and suspense, and like, aha, like, Eureka, this this clue has happened, but what does that mean now? And, like, it's, mm, it keeps mm. you guessing the whole time. It's really cool. Yeah, Which, totally. again, it keeps you guessing even though you know you know what, what has happened. It's all about, like, what's the outcome going to be? Mm. Um, the fact that he's so, uh, that Rupert is so friendly with the maid because they sort of go way back or whatever. The fact that yeah. he's talking to her, he, he has the dessert for her and stuff. Then she's telling him all of this stuff about like how peculiar it was that... Well, what was so different today? What wasn't? Mr. Brandon was in the maddest rush for me to clean up and get the table set. And, oh, it looked so lovely. But then when I was whisking out to do the shopping, he suddenly told me to take the whole afternoon for it. The whole afternoon. After that mad rush in the morning. Did he say why? No, just a whim, I suppose. But when I came back, he and Mr. Philip were going at it, hammer and tongs. Changing at the last minute where to serve the dinner and stuff. Again, they they thought that they had pulled off the perfect murder and that no no one would be the wiser, but Mm. they they weren't accounting on him, you know, like being so close with her. And, of course, she'd mention it because she was so, you know, thrown off by the whole change of everything. Hmm. Um, and then that last moment when they're they're all leaving because they're worried about David and all that stuff of him not showing up and getting handed the wrong hat and like putting it on and it being too small is it's such a good moment and just having the initials on the inside yeah, of the hat yeah. being like D F and you're like oh my god yeah I really like it playing out from from Rupert's perspective if you just focus on him it's it's as though he's this kind of jaded world weary intellectual type who's kind of um who's been kind of maybe flippant with his his ideas or his teachings as though he's like a, a, a disappointed idealist and now he's just like, fuck it. I'm just like, fuck it, kill people, I don't care, like whatever. <laughs> but then kind of and and so and, and doesn't have the the time or the patience for weird, peculiar dishonesty. Mm. So when he notices something's off, he's like, I, I can see something's off here. What's going on? Mm. And it's not because he suspects a murder a murder most foul, he's just like, don't bullshit me. I can I can read you cunts like books. What's going on? Yeah. And then as it, as it becomes more and more peculiar, you can see him not cottoning on that maybe there's been a murder, but that maybe something actually awful has happened here mm. and that this could be a worst-case scenario. And then when it proves true and that it was his teachings that inspired these kids to, or particularly in the case of Brandon, you know, commit this, this murder, it's a horrifying revelation for him. Yeah. Again, that, that disowning of his own ideas is, is fucking cool. Brandon, 
Until this very moment, this world and the people in it have always been dark and incomprehensible to me. And I've tried to clear my way with logic and superior intellect. And you've thrown my own words right back in my face, Brandon. You were right to, if nothing else, a man should stand by his words. But you've given my words a meaning that I never dreamed of. And you've tried to twist them into a cold, logical excuse for your ugly murder. Oh, they never were that, Brandon. And you can't make them that. There must have been something deep inside you from the very start that let you do this thing. But there's always been something deep inside me that would never let me do it. And would never let me be a party to it now. What do you mean? I mean that tonight you've made me ashamed of every concept I ever had of superior or inferior beings. And I thank you for that shame. It hits him like a, a, a fucking punch in the face that, uh, oh, this, this, the way I've been so careless with, with my, my words and my, my language where I've, I've picked language you know, based on how it feels rather than the meaning of the words, yes, as yeah. Brandon put points out earlier in the film, has it, it has done irreparable damage. Mm. Yeah, all of that is fascinating because yeah, you do see him cottoning on with like so many little things, um, and then almost like seemingly you think, oh, he's he's figured it out because of the hat. When he comes back in, and suddenly you see him, you know, making excuses like, oh, I forgot my c- c- cigarette case, and then he places it down. Mm. But then that reveal that he takes the rope off of the books that they were tied in, which again is like mm. the most smarmiest, like rub it in their face. This yeah, is the fucking yeah. rope that I strangled your son with and I'm going to tie disgusting. the books up and yeah. give them to you. Because he knows that um, that Philip had such a reaction to seeing the books tied up that, yeah, he's gone down, like well, you assume that he's they're all leaving and he, whatever he, whatever excuse he made, asks for the rope. And then, like, pulls it out of his pocket. That moment of him pulling it out of the pocket, you're like, oh, what is he doing? Like, oh, shit. Like, you mm. think he knows. But, again, it's like it's not – he doesn't suspect that they've gone that far or that they could have possibly done uh, uh, that, especially according to, like, yeah, what he taught them. But it's enough to make them absolutely lose it. Mm. And then, again, like, not even <laughs> – even when he's got a fucking gun in his pocket, he's not afraid to be like, uh, what are you doing? <laughs> Why, why do you have a gun in your pocket? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he just comes out and says it. And the thing about him placing the cigarette case on the chest um, in that moment is like moments before that we've seen Philip and, and Brandon clearing that chest off. They know nothing. They know the cigarette case wasn't on the chest. Mm. So, like, again, it's those little things of revealing stuff to us, the audience, that, that we know that another character doesn't, but that another character does know about. Yeah. And you, you're waiting for, for things to fall into place. Mm. So you kind of understand that, like, Brendan has reason to be suspicious, like truly, well and truly suspicious of Rupert at that point. Because up until that yeah. point, he's been taking Rupert at his word. Yeah, it, it's all that that audience expectation of what if I give you this piece of information, then that piece of information, just like yeah. playing on that of like what, like yeah, as as we're experiencing it, like what our reaction is to those events unfolding. It's so so masterfully done. Which again makes a hour twenty minute long film in the one shot in one room seem to fucking fly by with the the, the suspense that everything orchestrated to. It's so so good. 
it's a testament to that suspense that this is a film from 1948 and it, it is still, again, it's not nearly as graphic as films are today or even films were 30 years later, but the stomach-churning suspense that it produces yep. is still, like, it's still palpable. I still feel it in my gut. Yep. Yeah, I was the same. I don't know if it was because I, like, hadn't eaten food yet. I only had, like, a certain amount of time to watch it in, but I was, like, going, like, oh, come on. Oh, fuck, fuck. Is, it, is this yeah, going to happen? Yeah, like, yeah, totally. like yeah. really, really uneasy watching it, like, that little something in the back of your head's like, oh, fuck, am I going to get caught, like, watching this movie? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And again, it's a testament to the performances. I get the most tense watching Philip breaking down because I'm like, "Oh, that'd be me. I wouldn't get away with this." You know, yeah. you put yourself in those in those positions and go, "What would I do?" And and when you see your yourself in the worst possible way <laughs> represented, it's great. I I enjoyed this movie so much coming back to it, and yeah, even though, like you said, it's from 1948, so that that's pretty freaking old. It's it's not the oldest film we've done on here, but it's close. Mm. For, for for Hitchcock to be, you know, his calling card is suspense, for the suspense to still, like, ring true, like, 100%, mm. watching it so much longer later that the only thing that's dated is, like, yeah, the, the acting style of the time and, and everything. But yeah, it doesn't really matter that we're not, like, well, we're fucking from Australia. So, like, it's like we don't know prep schools and we don't know New York and we don't know all of that stuff. It, do- it doesn't matter because the, the suspense is there that, that gives us all of the stakes that we need to, to yeah. be entertained. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It doesn't matter that we don't know what, like, 1940s New York City and what prep schools are like back then or any of that. Yeah. No, it's- the suspense and the ideas that should resonate still do. Mm. Uh, even, I mean, uh, again, 1948, 2021, over 70 years later, like a lifetime for some people later. My God. Yeah, it's crazy. Insane. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode as much as we did. If you would like to support the podcast, we always say the best thing you can do is just sharing it word of mouth to a friend. And again, like I, like I said last week, do you want to be the smarmy film student to, to say to your friend, <laughs> what, you haven't seen Rope? It's a classic. You haven't seen it on my God. Dude, people in 70 years are going to be like, you haven't heard the Roasted Review episode about rope? It's a classic. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, no, that will be a career well uh, well preserved if people in 70 years' time are watching this episode and going like, the entertainment factor of this podcast is still still rings true <laughs> 70 years after, even though they, they were in a pandemic at the time. And- <laughs> Their, their, their very cold take of Hitchcock suspenseful <laughs> still rings true. Oh, <laughs> uh, no, yeah, no. If, if, if anyone's still talking about us the way that people still talk about Hitchcock, that's fucking, that, that would be amazing. <laughs> if anyone's talking about us, full stop. Yeah, exactly. If you think this podcast is worth talking about now, let alone in 70 years, <laughs> let alone please. 70 years. But if you do think it's worth, Rewatching in 70 years, you can support us monetarily by going to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash rose tinted review, where you can uh, get access to our exclusive content there, starting at $3 Australian per month. We'll get you mm-hmm. access to the supporter tier, where you get to listen to our afterthought series, which are uh, bonus little mini episodes behind the scenes or just shit that we forgot to mention in the episode. 
um, as well as our Beer Goggle Banter audio commentary slash supercut series where we take off the rose-tinted glasses and try and make bad movies more enjoyable with the help of alcohol and good friends. Um, Mm -hmm. And then up at the producer tier uh, at the $10 mark, you will get access to our monthly catch-up podcast, The Blind Spot, where we endeavour to fill in our viewing blind spots with cult classics, modern marvels, and new releases. Of course, all of our social medias are in the description down below where you can answer our question of the episode. If you were to kill one of your friends from university, which one would it be? (laughs) Well, certainly not the one I co-host a podcast with. No, No, not after this episode gets published. (laughs) <laughs> that would be true on the nose. That'd be the perfect I'm, crime. I'm so smart. I don't know. Per- like, I was recording a podcast with him just last night. <laughs> the perfect murder. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, no, I listened to your podcast. You talked about murdering him on the podcast. You joked about it. <laughs> I'm like, is that not the perfect crime? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> or maybe, maybe not who would you murder, but how would you pull off the perfect murder? Give us your hints. Sure. Give us your plans so that we can copy them <laughs> and then frame you and then that becomes my perfect murder. There you go. I've Hitchcocked them. <laughs> You've been Hitchcocked. <laughs> <laughs> On the back of this, Michael, I wanna, I'm, I'm going to pull out my own film student dick and, uh-huh, and, uh-huh. and wave it around. Uh, I want to do 1955's Night of the Hunter, directed by Charles Lawton, the only thing he ever directed, starring Robert Mitchum, as a serial killing preacher. I have heard of this film, Connor, but I'm going to let you say it because I have not seen this film. You haven't seen Night of the Hunter? And I feel what are you doing? It's a classic. I feel so ashamed now. Yes. Oh, Been God. Been berated. I, f- I feel a so. fake film fan. Knowledgeable. <laughs> as always, we, we like to tell uh, the listeners to get the full Full enjoyment, uh, like a book club, uh, follow along at home. Please watch the film before listening to the episode to get that full uh, extra amount of context. So join us next time when we find out whether or not our hindsight is truly 2020 or if we've just been wearing rose-tinted glasses. Is it all over? I'm afraid so, Rupert. Oh, what a pity. In another moment, you might have been strangling each other instead of a chicken. Mr. Goodell, really? Oh, but a man's honor was at stake. And personally, I think a chicken is as good a reason for murder as a blonde, a mattress full of dollar bills, or any of the customary unimaginative reasons. Now, you don't really approve of murder, Rupert, if I may. You may, and I do. Think of the problems it would solve. Unemployment, poverty... Standing in line for theater tickets? I must say I've had a perfectly dreadful time getting tickets for that new musical. What's it called? You know. The something with what's-her-name? <laughs> My dear Miss Atwater, careful application of the trigger finger and a pair of seats in the first row is yours for the shooting. And have you had any difficulty in getting into our velvet rope restaurants? Frightful. A very simple matter. A flick of the knife, madame. And if you'll kindly step this way, or no, a step over the head waiter's body. Thank you. And here's your table. 